I'm Deidre. And I'm Chelsea. And we're giving you a million murders. We hope you're doing great. Splendid. How are you, Chelsea? Splendid. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> Not splendid? Not oh. splendid at all. I've had a rough month. You have. You really have. Thankful for the overtime. I've worked every day in tens. And my car's messed up. So, yep. yeah. Just so y'all, just give y'all a little heads up. <laughs> It's been uh, stressful. It has. 2023 ain't been good to me. <laughs> 2022, 2021 wasn't good. It's just been struggling year after year. But it's all right. I still got... Mm. Anyway. So, yeah. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Hope you're better. <laughs> I'm good. I am good. Let's see. Okay, so... Today, I'm going to do... The story about the solder children. The solder. Yes. And it is an unsolved case. So there's that. Um, it's unsolved and it takes place in West Virginia. And there is also kind of like something at the end that is going to interest us. Oh. Um, Ooh, that was ugly. <laughs> that was so deep. Listen. But there's an interesting part in there where us Kentuckians that are in the western part of Kentucky will find very interesting, and I'm very excited mm-hmm. about it. I'm so excited. Okay, so the town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, was shocked when they noticed the Sauter family home was on fire. The small town didn't know it yet, but this was just the beginning of the nightmare that was to come. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. So, the Sauter family matriarch, George Sauter, was originally Giorgio Sardou from Tula, Sardinia, Sardinia, Italy, in 1895. I already can tell I could not have done this case. <laughs> That's it. That's like the... There's, it's just names. It's just names. That's all. I don't know. <laughs> so, so, he ended up immigrating to the United States 13 years later with his older brother, Um but the older brother went back to Italy as soon as they went through Ellis Island. Huh. Yeah. And George would never talk much about why he left Italy. So no one is sure what happened. Mm-hmm. So him and his brother just, or he and his brother or whatever. My grammar is not great. Um, but got through Ellis Island and then the brother went back. He said, Deuces. like, that's a trip. That's a trip. I don't know. So I don't know what happened, and George never really talked about it, so no one knows what happened there either. So George would later work on the Pennsylvania Railroads, carrying water and other supplies to workers. Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill went up the hill. Which, wasn't it Pennsylvania that those, on the Thanksgiving bonus episode, I'm pretty sure that was Pennsylvania, or was it Massachusetts, where they found all those bodies of the Irishmen? Ooh, I don't remember. I don't remember either, but it could be. But either way, so he went to New York, was then, or arrived in New York, Mm -hmm. then went to Pennsylvania, 
and worked on the railroads, was carrying the water, and then he took a more stable profession as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia, and that's where he would go on to start his own trucking company that started out hailing field dirt hauling. <laughs> I was like, what? You pulled a chassis. Yeah, I typed it wrong. Okay, so that was he started his own trucking company that started out hauling field dirt to construction sites, but would later haul coal in the region. Hmm. So it ended up being a coal truck, which mm-hmm. we know those very well. See. From the area that we live in. Um, so in 1922, he marries Jenny Cipriani, and she's a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers who had also immigrated from Italy in childhood. So he found another Italian immigrant, mm-hmm. and they married. And the new Sauter family would settle outside Fayetteville, West Virginia, which had a large Italian immigrant population. And so in Fayetteville, they lived in a two-story timber frame house north of town. By the next year, they had one of their first out of ten children had one of their had one of their ten children, and George's business boomed. He became very respected in his community. And although George was revered in his town and everything, he had mm-hmm. some strong opinions about many things, and he wasn't shy about speaking them to people. Like, he didn't... Speaking his mind was never an issue yeah. <laughs> for George. He did he, not care. He was blunt. Yeah, yeah, very blunt. And, you know, it made people uncomfortable. Mm. You know, which, I mean, that can. So, he often spoke about um, Mussolini, the Italian dictator, mm-hmm. which led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. And he had been in power. So Mussolini had been in power and founded and led the National Fascist Party from 1922 to 1943. So he felt one way about Mussolini, but some of the other immigrants in the town felt differently, Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, because they're all coming from Italy, so people are going to obviously have different views in politics and stuff like that. But he didn't care who he told that he didn't like Mussolini. So he was like, mm, <laughs> I don't care. So the 10th child, Sylvia, would be born in 1943. So, I mean, 23 to 43. 10 years. Jenny was... Or, <coughs> 20 years. 20, uh, Jenny was having children. Like, I can't imagine. But 10th child, Sylvia, would be born in 43. So now, she's 80. She'll be 80 this year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the 10th child, Sylvia, was born in 43. And at this point, their second oldest son, Joe, who was 21, was fighting in World War II. Um, so they had a 21-year-old and they and a new baby. Yeah, yeah, because okay. it was over 20 years mm-hmm, that she had the kids. I missed the first birth, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the first birth was in 23. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they married in 22. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, Mussolini was deposed and executed, and George's words about him had left some hard feelings in the area. So, you know, like, it wasn't long before, you know, well, I mean, I guess he always talked about Mussolini, because it was 20 years ago, I guess, when he would say stuff. But anyway, so Mussolini dies, or is executed, and... You know, people still feel some type of way about what he said. Mm -hmm. And in October of 1945, a life insurance salesman visiting his home warned George that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. 
because of all the dirty remarks he made about Mussolini. Uh-uh. Yeah, so what's that about? Threat. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm sorry, what are you saying? Are you threatening me? You know, and so that happened. And then another visitor came to the house and they were looking for work. And they also warned George that a pair of fuse boxes in the home would cause a fire someday. And so George was really confused about this because he had just had someone come and rewire the entire house Hmm. when they installed Mm -hmm. an electric stove. And so the electric company had deemed it safe. So, yeah, you know, electric company said it was fine, but then somebody was like, oh, those are going to cause a fire. Unless it was just a cover-up. Yeah. So... A few weeks before Christmas that year, George's older children noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town, watching the younger Sodder children as they came home from school. Now, we're jumping to Christmas Eve, 1945. Mm -hmm. Marion, the oldest daughter, is 19 and works in a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. When she gets home from work, she has surprised her younger sisters, Martha, who's 12, Jenny, named after the mom, who's Mm -hmm. eight, and Betty, who's five, with new toys she bought for them as gifts. So the girls were super excited and begged to stay up past their bedtime to play with their new toys. Mm -hmm. And at 10 o'clock, Jenny, the mom, Jenny, told the kids they could stay up a little longer as long as the two oldest boys were awake. So Jenny then took two-year-old Sylvia upstairs and went to bed. And their brothers, Maurice, 14, and Louis, 19, had to put the cows in and feed the chickens before they went to bed, which gave them some time to keep playing. Mm-hmm. So George, Dad George, John, who was 22, and George Jr., who was 16, had already spent the day working, so they were asleep. Like, they had already gone to bed. Mm-hmm. So then the phone rang around 1230 Christmas morning. Jenny woke up and went downstairs to answer the call. So, like, you know, it is the 40s, so it's not like there's a cordless phone or even a landline that's, like, in your bedroom. Like, she woke up and went all the way downstairs. It just wouldn't be me. I'd be like, whatever. Mm -hmm. They'll have to wait. But she went all the way downstairs to answer the phone, and the caller was a woman, but Jenny couldn't place her voice with anyone she knew. And the woman was asking for someone whose name she also didn't recognize, And she could hear, like, laughter and glasses clinking in the background of the call. Mm -hmm. And so Jenny told her she had the wrong number and recalled the woman's weird laugh. Like, the woman had a really weird laugh, but she was laughing and there was stuff in the background. So, you know, Jenny hung up the phone and went back to bed. So when she did, she noticed the lights were still on and the curtains weren't drawn. And these were two things that the kids normally made sure were done before going to bed. Mm -hmm. When they stayed up later than George and Jenny... But Marion had fallen asleep on the couch in the living room, so Jenny figured the other kids staying up had gone to bed in the attic where they slept. So she closed the curtains, turned off the lights, and went to bed. Well, around an hour later, at 1 o'clock, Jenny was woken up again by the sound of something hitting the roof with a loud bang, followed by a rolling noise. Mm. So I was like, Jenny can't get any sleep. She can't. Like, it's impossible. And... Now she hears something banging and rolling, which almost sounds like Stephanie's story about the thing that would hit the tin roof and roll off. Oh, yeah. That's what that reminded me of. Um, But so that's what she hears, a loud bang followed by a rolling noise. So she went back to sleep, but about a half hour later, she woke up smelling smoke. So she got up, 
to check on everything and found George's office was on fire around the telephone line and fuse box. Hmm. Yeah. So, house is on fire. So Jenny woke up George um, and yelled and yelled until John and George Jr. came down, the two that were working that day. Uh, She recalled their hair being singed by the flames. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's... uh, like you just wake up and it's Christmas and your house is on fire and it's just insane. It's just crazy, you know? And so both parents and the four of the 10 children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr. escaped the house. So one kid's off to war, four kids escape. So that leaves five children Mm -hmm. left, right? And so they couldn't, They yelled to the children upstairs, but they never heard a response, and they couldn't reach the attic because the stairway to get there was already engulfed in flames. John, the 22-year-old, said after the fire, he went to the attic to alert his brother and sisters sleeping there, but he later told police that he only called up there and didn't lay eyes on the kids. So that's kind of back and forth. Like, did he see the kids? Did Mm -hmm. he try to wake them up? Did he, you know, what happened? The Sodders had a hard time trying to rescue the children and get help to put out the fire. The phone didn't work, so Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department. Uh, There was someone driving down the road that also saw the flames and called the fire department at a nearby tavern, but the call failed as they couldn't reach the operator or because the phone at the tavern was broken. So something happened. This other person trying to call for help can't even call because the phone's broken or something's happened with the operator. And then eventually, someone was able to reach the fire department from another phone in the center of town. So, like, not even Marion or this other person got Hmm. a hold of him. But somebody in town was finally able to call. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, this is... And this part is just a disaster. I mean, the way things went... Like, they could have gone a lot better. Um, But George climbed up to the side of the house and broke the attic window open with his bare hands, which cut his arms. And he and his sons were going to use the ladder to rescue the kids upstairs, but it wasn't resting against the house where it usually was, and it was nowhere to be found. Hmm. Yeah, so there was a ladder that was always by the house, and it's now gone. It has disappeared. And a water barrel nearby was frozen solid, so it couldn't be used to put out the fire because, I mean, it's cold. Yeah. So now the water's frozen from the barrel. The ladder's gone. I mean, it's just going downhill Yeah. at this point. So then George decides he's going to pull the two trucks he uses from his business up to the house and climb in the window, but neither of the trucks were working, even though they had worked perfectly fine the day before. Mm -mm. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just everything they're trying to do. Yeah. Nothing's working. Nothing. So, um, the Sodders were so frustrated and panicked, but they couldn't do anything but watch the house burn down for 45 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Knowing that their five children were upstairs and that they were gone. Like, there was no coming back from it. Like, they were going to die because this fire was just burning and they couldn't put it out they couldn't reach them i mean it was just a disaster so the fire department was short-staffed due to world war ii and they had to rely on individual firefighters to call each other they didn't respond until later that morning so like 
they're not at a firehouse and they're like, oh, a call came through and they're all sliding down the pole like you see in like, you know, Chicago fire, whatever. This is like, they have to call each other. So one person hears about the fire. They tell me, I tell you, we tell Victoria and, and everybody else under the sun, you know, that's crazy. Like, how long is that going to take? And, I mean, obviously it took a while because they didn't respond until later that morning. You know, it's like mm-hmm. sometime after 1 a.m. whenever this fire starts, you know. And Fire Chief F.J. Morris also said the already slow delay for help was slowed down even more because he couldn't drive the fire truck. He had to wait for someone who could drive the truck to arrive at the station. Wow. I'm like, how are you the fire chief and you can't drive yeah. the fire truck? Everybody should be trained to drive the fire to truck drive just in case situations like this. Yeah, why? But also, you're the fire chief, and you no one ever trained you to drive. Yeah, that's drive weird. the fire truck. That's weird. I don't know. It's it was crazy. So anyway, so they had to wait for somebody to get there. Um, one of Jenny's brothers was a firefighter. The mom, Jenny, and oh, okay. he was at the scene. But the fire was so devastating, the house had completely collapsed. Wow. And he, yeah, I mean, and it was like a, I think I said it was a wooden house. I don't know if I said that or not. Uh, I don't recall. And it you may, could have. That don't mean nothing. Yeah, I could have. <laughs> we don't remember. And also, it could be later on. Because we know I like to jump ahead <laughs> of what I wrote down for the case. <laughs> like, I literally wrote this, if I could trust myself. But anyway, so yeah, um... Completely collapsed, and he could only look through the ashes left in the basement. So, I mean, it was just completely destroyed. So, by 10 o'clock Christmas morning, Chief Morris told the Sodders they couldn't find any bones or remains of the children. So, some people say they found bones but decided not to tell the family. But fire professionals have been asked about this case, and they feel that the search was probably done quickly and inefficiently. Morris believed the five children did die in the fire and thought the fire could be hot enough to burn their bodies completely. So the fire chief told George not to go through the remains of the house so the West Virginia Fire Marshal's office could do a complete investigation into the fire. Well, four days later, poor George and Jenny couldn't stand the sight of their home anymore. Right. So he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site of his former home and they wanted to plant a memorial garden for his children who had died in the fire. And so the town's coroner asked for an inquest the next day. An inquest is used to determine the cause of someone's death and is conducted by a judge, jury, or government official. Mm -hmm. Okay, and sometimes an autopsy has to be done by the coroner for an inquest, but in this case, there wasn't a way. Because there weren't any bodies. Mm -hmm. So one of the men who threatened George that his house would burn down would end up on the inquest jury. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And they ruled the fire was accidental due to faulty wiring. Okay. So that's just something to keep in mind here. You know, like I said, this case is unsolved, but. Yeah. That's interesting that that happened the way it happened, you know. So, the five children, Maurice, 14, Martha Lee, 12, Louis, 10, Jenny Irene, 8, and Betty, 6, were all issued death certificates on December 30th, 
Was the two-year-old, did you say that? The two-year-old was one of the ones that got out. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was um, the two-year-old, the 20-year-old, or the 22-year-old. And the 19? Was the, the 19th was the girl. Yeah. Yeah, Marion was 19. Okay. Sylvia was two. John is 22. And George Jr. is like 16, I think. I don't know about you. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, the 22-year-old, the 16-year-old, the 19-year-old, and the 2-year-old got out alive. The one brother's over at the war, um, and he's, so he's not even in the country. And then the 14-year-old, 12-year-old, 10-year-old, 8-year-old, and 6-year-old are the ones that are considered dead. Yeah, so the local newspaper made a mistake claiming their bodies were found but later in the same story said only part of one bone was recovered. Although this wasn't the case either. So like the news, everybody's getting it all messed up. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a hot mess. So then their funerals were held on January 2nd, 1946 and George and Jenny were too heartbroken to even attend, but their surviving children did attend. So like they didn't even go to their kids' funerals. That's sad. I know. Like I can't, I mean like half of your family Oh, yeah. It's literally gone. I mean, they're just gone. Um, so, as the family tried to move on with their grief, they started to question a lot of the official findings about the fire. They wondered if it was truly caused by an electrical problem. Um, the family's lights, Christmas lights, remained on during the fire's early stages when the power should have went out. If it was like an electrical faulty thing, Mm -hmm. you know, and they found that missing ladder 75 feet away from the house in a ditch. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's an accident. Yeah. Like who, who moved that? Okay. And then a telephone repairman came out and told the Sodders the house's phone line wasn't burned during the fire, preventing them from calling out. In actuality, the line was cut by someone who was so determined they climbed 14 feet up the pole mm-hmm. and reached two feet away from the pole to cut the line. Ratchet. Yeah. There was also a man whom neighbors had noticed stealing a block and tackle, which is what people use to carry heavy loads with a hook and a, like a pulley, uh, from the property around the time of the fire. And this man would later be identified and arrested. Um, and so this guy admitted to the theft and claimed he was also the one who cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but he denied having anything to do with the fire. He said, and so, yeah, like there aren't any records that could be found telling this man's identity or Mm -hmm. why he would want to cut any utility lines to the solder house. That was my next question. Yeah. Like, yeah, they don't know why he would do it while stealing the block and tackle. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. So Jenny had trouble accepting the fire chief's belief that all traces of the children's bodies could be completely burned in the fire. There were even some appliances that were still recognizable, you know, in the ash, um, along with tin roof fragments And so she had actually read about a similar fire that killed a family of seven from a newspaper article, and all seven skeletal remains were found at the site of the fire. Hmm. Yeah, so she's like, where are my kids' remains, you know? Like, this isn't making any sense. So, Jamie, (laughs) 
Jenny even experimented by burning small piles of animal bones to see if they would disintegrate. Mm. Each time, the bones remained. So, I mean, she's like... Investigating. Yeah. I mean, she's on it, like, trying to figure out, like, let's just see. Let's just test it out. And so a local crematorium employee told her human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. Wow. So, I mean, that's, you know. And the temperature was, of course, hotter and the time was longer than the house fire, which only burned for 45 minutes. So at this point, it's like, okay, well, if a body can have remains after 2,000 yeah. degrees for two hours, this 45-minute fire that didn't get anywhere near that hot, there should be full skeletal be, remains. Yeah. So then the family was also wondering why the two work trucks failed to start that night. George thought they were tampered with, maybe by the guy who cut the phone line, but later, one of George's son-in-laws told a newspaper that he believes George and the boys had flooded the engines trying to quickly start the trucks, which would account for why it would work the next day and for why they were working the day before. Um, and I looked this up because I was like, well, I mean, how long is an engine, you know? So an older engine can take up to 20 minutes to start after being flooded. And that's like an older model vehicle let alone an engine from the 40s like that's like 90s 2000s 70s you know those kind of older engines not one from the 40s so who knows how long it took for it to recover from that okay so then the next thing people thought the woman who called the wrong number was connected to the fire Mm -hmm. or only pretended to call the wrong number but the detectives found the woman who made the call and she confirmed it was an accident which I'm like, okay, but... But the laughing. Yeah, but I mean, they also heard the glasses clinking, so it was probably someone just drunk Yeah, who called. But, you know, they said that she didn't have anything to do with it, so it's like, okay, well, there goes one more lead. So later that year, they learned that the house was deliberately set on fire and not an electrical fire. Mm-hmm. A bus driver that was going through Fayetteville on the night of Christmas Eve saw people throwing what she described as balls of fire at the house. As the winter snow melted, Sylvia, the youngest child, the youngest child, Sylvia, the youngest child, found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the bushes nearby. This could be the loud thump and rolling sound that Jenny heard that night. Mm-hmm. And when George looked at the object, he said it looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like some bomb-like device used in the war. Just got people out here building bombs. Yeah, like a little... Well, I think this one was probably bought. But, I mean, I don't know. It oh, could have yeah. been... It could have been made, too. You never know. So then the family would later come out and say, unlike that the marshal believed that the roof was the first area that caught fire of the house... Because I think the fire marshal thought that maybe it was those fuse boxes or something. Mm-hmm. But it was the roof. So, of course, they couldn't prove it because there weren't any eyewitnesses. But I was just thinking, the roof. The, the roof, roof. The roof is on fire. Yep. Yeah, so we've got this lady who's seen the balls of fire being thrown on the roof. But nobody could prove that they caught that it caught the roof on fire because it was just that bus driver driving by who saw people throwing things. So, anyway... Okay, then there have been other accounts of people claiming 
to have seen the children after the fire. One woman, who was watching the fire from the side of the road, said a passing car had children that looked like a few of the solder kids peering out the window. Hmm. Yeah, which, okay, that's not great. Then another account came from a woman at a rest stop somewhere between Fayetteville and Charleston. And she said she served the solder children breakfast the next morning and noticed a car with a Florida license plate in the parking lot as well. Hmm. So... She said that she fed them, and then the Sauter family would eventually go into um, the process of hiring a private investigator, and his name was C.C. Tinsley. He's from Gawley Bridge. Um, they wanted him to take a look into the mystery of the outcome of the children. Tinsley had told the family that the insurance salesman that visited the house and threatened George mm-hmm. was on the jury that ruled the fire an accident, because they didn't even know that. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So they're like, he's like, by the way, this guy was the one who ruled this an accident or part of the well, process. Yeah. So then he also heard about some rumors floating around town that even though the Sodders were told there weren't any remains, that there was a heart found, which was later placed in a metal box and secretly buried. Mm-mm. Yeah. So now they're hearing all these rumors They've got the private investigator on the scene. He's telling them stuff they didn't know about, plus the rumors. So they're hearing a lot of stuff right yeah. now. So Morris, the fire chief, had confessed to his minister, who then turned around and confirmed this with George. So George and Tinsley confronted the fire chief, who then dug up the metal box. So like it was true. Yeah. It was true. That's crazy. He dug up the metal box. And when they took the box to a local funeral director, he confirmed that the organ was just fresh beef liver that was never exposed to fire. Mm-mm. Yeah. The fire chief would finally confirm this and said he hoped the Sodders would just find it and just be satisfied with the fire chief's findings that the children did die in the fire. So in his eyes, I guess he was like, I mean, this is the only way that it could have happened. And so now I'm going to plant a f- beef liver or a beef heart, you know, in in the ground and hope that they just take that. So there's just one heart left, even though the bones are gone. The heart survived. Yeah. Like. That's a muscle. Bruh. Yeah. So anyway, which I'm like, that's just tacky and terrible. And why would you do that but anyway so throughout the years family searched and followed leads they would find or ones they were told to by other people and you know george saw a photo of a young ballet dancer in new york that resembled betty once and he drove all the way to the girl's school and demanded to see her but he was refused because Mm -hmm. he wasn't you know on the list but he's like he sees a girl in a magazine and he takes off you know, and tries to find her. And he also tried to get the FBI involved since he believed it was a kidnapping. You know, it's like the kids are gone. Yeah. There aren't any remains in the fire. The fire seemingly isn't hot enough to completely disintegrate all the bones. bones. So where are the children? So then J. Edgar (laughs) Hoover... 
So then J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director at the time, responded to his letters saying, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and doesn't come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau, which the FBI can only get involved in certain matters on their own. Like if a crime is committed on federal land, they're automatically involved. Mm -hmm. But in other cases where we see the FBI involved, it is because they've been asked to be involved by the local authorities. And so this is also what J. Edgar told George. Um, If they were invited, he would be happy to do so. But of course, Fayetteville police and fire departments declined to take their help. Mm-mm. And it's like, just just take their help. Yeah. Just tell them to come on in. Like, y'all haven't had to deal with anything like this before. But they didn't. So, George wasn't willing to give up, though. And, and in August of 1949, he was able to convince a pathologist from Washington, D.C. named Oscar Hunter to come search the dirt at the site of the home. So after he did the search of the land, they found some artifacts, but the main thing they would find would be some sort of vertebra. Mm. Yeah, um, or vertebrae. They sent the bone fragments to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian Institution. Okay, so like, this is big. Mm -hmm. You know, they're sending it there. After looking further, they confirmed that it was the vertebrae of a human, the lumbar vertebrae to be exact, which are the five vertebrae between the rib cage and the pelvis. So I think I was supposed to be saying vertebrae and then one of the five vertebrae. But anyway, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think I was. So according to Newman's report, since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been around 16 to 17 years old. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra was still in, unfused. This usually happens around 23 years old. This finding made it hard for them to believe it could be any of the five children's bones due to Maurice being the oldest one that was missing and he was only 14 at the time. Right. So all these bones, all these vertebrae, all this stuff fuses at some point as you get older, which is weird because I thought... I don't think I realized bones were still fusing this late in life. (laughs) Like, you know, but okay, cool. The more you know. So, yeah. So Newman also mentioned that the vertebrae showed no signs of exposure to a fire and found it very strange that those bones were the only bones found at the site due to the duration of the fire and that the house was mostly made of wood. There it is. There I go talking about the house mostly made of Mm. wood. Okay, so Newman also believed. Oh. <laughs> I, for, I was like, oh, there it is. So Newman also believed that there would have been full skeletons of the children left at the scene, like other sources were telling right. the family. So, like, he's agreeing as well. Everyone is agreeing that the children should be there and they're not. Mm-hmm. Okay, like, we're all on one accord here. Like, or at least a lot of us are. Yeah. Not everyone. So the report concluded that the vertebrae had most likely come from the dirt that the family had used to bulldoze and cover the area after the fire and not necessarily from the that house. Yeah, right. Which then just leads to another unanswered question. Whose remains who's, were in the pile of dirt? Yeah. Like who's, you know, where'd he get the dirt? What happened? 
Do they? Did they go look? Oh, well, you could have that in there. No. So the Mistone, the, the, the Mistonian, <laughs> the Smithsonian returned the bone fragments to George in September 1949, and their current location is unknown. Huh. Yeah. I'm like, who? Who's vertebra? Who? Who's vertebra? Vertebrae? That's who's, crazy. Yeah. Whose remains are those? Like, mm-mm. And nobody knows what happened to them. Another murder. It's like, yeah, I'm like... So, I don't know. That'd be great if they could find that, and then we could figure out who's that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we could solve somebody's case. But anyway, by 1950, there were two hearings on the case held by the West Virginia legislator, and the investigation was known on a national level. Mm-hmm. So, like, by this time, everybody knows about this case. Yeah. After the two hearings, Governor Oki L. Pattison and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sauter family their case was hopeless and the case would then be closed at the state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but after two years, dropped the case due to lack of leads. Mm. So, the state's like, this is a hopeless case. We're never going to figure this out. They stop. And then the FBI jumps in because they're like, okay, maybe we have jurisdiction if it's an interstate kidnapping. And then they drop them after two years. Because there were there was a lack of leads, and I mean honestly, what leads do we have to go on? We've yeah. got eyewitnesses seeing somebody throw something on the roof, mm-hmm. driving away in a car, people saying that they fed them the next day, but all it's not enough, you mm-hmm. know. So the Sauter family wasn't going to give up that easily, even when everyone else decided the case was unsolvable. They printed flyers with the children's pictures and offered a five thousand dollar reward. That would later become a $10,000 reward for any information that would lead them to just one of the five missing children. Like, if you can give us anything. And then in 1952, they put up the infamous billboard at the site of the house and another billboard along U.S. Route 40, U.S. Route 60, near Anstead as well. Um, Which, you know, the billboard has, like, all of the children on it and says you know if you know anything there's this reward please call this number Mm -hmm. but it's like painted um you know at the site and like they said on the other place too on the on the highway Mm -hmm. so after the billboards were erected sightings of the children started coming in again a woman named ida crutchfield ran a hotel in charleston and claimed she saw the children about a week after the billboards were posted but couldn't remember the exact date the exact date that she saw them in her statement to police. She said the children came to the hotel around midnight with two men and women who seemed to be of Italian descent. When she tried to speak with the children, one of the men looked at her hatefully and started speaking Italian in a rapid manner. So he's like, no ma'am, don't talk to these kids. Hmm. So that's weird. She said, as soon as she spoke to the children, the entire group started talking to her and that they left very early the next morning. Investigators today don't think her story is credible, though. She had only first seen the children's photos two years after the fire, and it took five years to come forward with her story. Hmm. I'm not sure. You never know. She could have been terrified for all we know. You know, that could have been why she didn't come forward. But, you know, who knows? So that was a sighting. And, you know, any other leads that would come the family's way were checked on by George himself like he would travel to st louis 
to Texas to speak with people who believed they'd spotted the children. Um, there was a lady in St. Louis, Missouri, hmm. who claimed that Martha, the 12-year-old, was there in a convent. Um, someone in a bar in Texas said they overheard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some time ago. Unfortunately, all the leads weren't helpful in the end. Like, all of them. Mm -hmm. None of them turned out to be anything. And George even went to Florida when he heard that a relative of Jenny's had children that resembled his, just to be sure. Yeah. And the relative had to prove they were her children before George could trust them. Like, he was... Oh, yeah. Honey, he said, are these my kids? Bless his heart. Are those my children? Prove to me they're not my kids. She's like, sis, these are my children. Okay, so then another tip would come in in 1967. So at this point, we're 20 years, 22 years after mm-hmm. the fire, you know. And this tip would come from Houston, Texas. George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, traveled to speak with a woman who had written to the family. She wrote that Lewis had revealed his identity to her one night after getting drunk. She thought he and Maurice were living, were both living in Texas somewhere. So, some guy's like, it's me. I'm Lewis, the missing solder kid. You know, the 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when the police arrived, or when they arrived, um, George and, you know, the son-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, they weren't able to speak to her. But the police were able to locate the two men she thought were Lewis and Maurice. And when confronted, they denied being the missing sons. Um, Grover, the son-in-law, said that even years later, George had his doubts about the two men, and that lingered in poor George's mind for the rest of his life. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just wondering if that could be your kid or not. I just, oh. But, so, but hmm. why would why would they want to be, if it was them, why wouldn't they want to be like, Dad, you know, like that's... Maybe oh. to protect him? Because if the... If the theory of oh, I didn't think about them that. getting kidnapped because of the Mussolini stuff, maybe they were like, we'll kill all y'all if you ever get back together. Oh, I don't, okay, yeah. I don't know, though. I don't know, because I feel like I'd be like, it's me, it's me. Like, I'd be whispering about that. Okay, so the next part is the part that I'm most excited to talk about, mm. because I can't believe it. Okay, another letter would come that year. This letter would have the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. One day, Jenny found a letter addressed to her. The mother? Yeah. Okay. The mother, Jenny. Because the daughter, Jenny, is one of them that's missing, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, one day, Jenny found a letter addressed to her. It was postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. What? Yes. Yes. Shut the front door. I I have heard this story for years. Shut up. I know. I know. I've heard this story for years, and I've never, ever, ever, ever heard. It's funny, because when Central you City. said Central City, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, is she going to say Kentucky? Like, I was just... Because there's other central cities. Oh, yeah. There's central cities everywhere. Central City, Kentucky. Mind blown. What? That's insane. Wait, what year was this? This was in the 40s. So I showed my picture. So, okay. Let me, hold on. Oh. Let me finish this. So inside the letter was a picture of a young man seemingly in his 30s that looked extremely similar to Lewis as a child. 
Lewis would have been in his 30s at the time the letter was written, and on the back of the photo was written, Lewis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, and then it was like a capital I, and then L-I-L, boys. Um, I love little boys? No, like I-L-I-L, boys. Almost like Illil, like I little boys. And then the number, the well, A, the letter A, then 90132, or A90135. They couldn't tell if it was a two or a five. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so that's in there. So I showed the picture to Shut my dad. Up. To my dad, and I was like, does this person look familiar? And he was like, no. I was like, because I'm like, if anybody knows... Gonna be, <laughs> it's gonna be my dad. He knows everyone, and he didn't recognize the person in the picture. But I mean, who knows? Now, we, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. The letter she got the letter, it was addressed to her. And what year was it? Did she get the letter in 60 something? Because he would have been, yeah, it was, yeah, it was in like the 60s. What, yeah. I'm awake now because I'm like, bruh. I know, I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. Okay, so the family hired a private detective to go to Central City to see what they could find, but he was never heard from or seen again. Like, this is terrible because I'm like, obviously it's a sad story, but it's like, what? It's exciting. Like, I'm like so excited right now. Like, they can't. Yeah. Like, what's going on, right? So then they added the picture to the billboard, but left out Central City being the location of the postmark from the letter. And then they would later put an enlarged version of the picture on their fireplace. Because they were really sure it was Lewis. Wow. But yeah. I mean, what do you think about that? Isn't that crazy? That's insane. I, I mean, I freaked out when I saw this and I was like, what? So yeah. But where's the where'd the private eye go that went to Central City and he never came back and they never heard from him again? Uh-uh. The private eye? Did you not hear what I said? Uh-uh. The, uh, the, uh, the family hired a private detective to go to Central City to see what they could find, but he was never heard from or seen again. Because he got got. What happened? I don't know. Okay, so that's... <sighs> and it's the same one that's been helping them, right? Or, oh, okay, never mind, never mind. No, I think it's a different one. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, George told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 1963 that the lack of information was like hitting a rock wall and that they couldn't go any further. He vowed that he would never stop searching for his children. He said, time is running out for us. And he also added, but we want, we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Yeah. Like, if they died in the fire, he's like, I can accept that, but where's the proof? Like, convince me that they did, or we want to know what happened to them. Yeah. Okay, so... So, George passed away in 1969. Mm. So, literally, like, 24 years after the children went missing. And Jenny... And the other children continued to look for answers. Jenny wore black the rest of her life and tended to the garden at the site of their former home. I know, it's so sad. And after her death, 
1989. Oh. So 20 years later. Two it, years before I was born. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The family, they so they finally took down the weathered and worn down billboard after, you know, the mom died. Aww. The Sauter children, who are, you know, still alive, mm-hmm. now joined by their own children, continue to try to keep the case in the spotlight and find new leads. One of the brothers, John, is the only exception to this. Um, he feels the family should accept what happened and move on with their lives. The grand, uh, the son of the kid, one of the kids? No, John, one of the brothers. Oh, Like the okay. original Sauter kids. Yeah, the 22-year-old. Okay. So, John, the 22-year-old, um, no. So, John, like I said, was the 22-year-old sibling at the time of the fire. He has never spoken about the fire since that night. Oh, wow. Yeah, like he just hasn't talked about it at all. It's really weird because I'm pretty sure he's the one that they sent to go up there and look. Yeah, and some someone said he went up there to get him. He said he he said he went up there and tried to wake him up, like he saw the kids. But then he changed his story he said he didn't. and said he didn't. I think that's him. Um, but it, okay, so anyway, um, the other siblings, along with other Fayetteville residents, think the Sicilian mafia was trying to extort money from George. They think when that failed, someone on the inside lured the children to what they pretended to be safety. Uh, they wonder if they were even taken back to Italy and if they knew their parents and other siblings even survived as well. Um, the family also thinks they may have avoided contacting the family in order to keep them from harm. Hmm. So, you know, this whole thing with the Italian mafia could be something. They could have went back to Italy. You know, they just don't know what happened. And it sucks because you don't, it's hard to be like, I hope they died in the fire. That way they didn't have to deal with the heartbreak of not being with their family. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. Or even thinking that their family died. Who knows yeah. if they if they were kidnapped, they may think their whole family died in the fire and that they just yeah. don't have family anymore. And that could have been what the kidnappers told them. So then they just went on with their lives and didn't say nothing about how they were looking for them or nothing. Yeah. I mean, who knows? And if they were in Italy, then they wouldn't. But... I would be surprised, but I don't know. The Central City thing still has me. I know. I'm shooketh. It's. Like, Louis Sauter, if they're alive, Louis Sauter could have been in in Kentucky. That's insane. Like, I don't know. It just makes me want to go back and look at old yearbooks. But anyway, okay, so back to this. (laughs) I mean, we're still talking about this, but back to the. Last little bit of the case. So, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest sibling that made it out of the fire, died in 2021. Yeah, the little two-year-old. The two-year-old? The two-year-old. She died in 2021. How? Oh, so she was... She was in her 70s, because if she was two at the time of the fire, the fire was in 45, so she was born in 43. So, she would have been turning 80... Oh, and the one that I said year? was gonna was gonna be eighty, yeah, cause Mamma. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. You did say she was gonna be eighty. Yeah, so she died Aww. two years ago, 
I know. Where were they living? Where was she living at? Uh, Do you know? If you don't know, that's fine. I don't think it says. Yeah. She said her earliest memory. Earliest. She said her earliest memory is the night of the fire. I was the last one of the kids to leave home. She said in an interview to the Gazette Mail in 2013. She and George would often stay up late talking about what might have happened while he was still alive. I experienced grief for a long time. She said, um, and she thinks her siblings survived that night and helped publicize the case as well. You know, so she was still fighting. Yeah. Her daughter was quoted saying, she promised my grandparents she wouldn't let the story die, that she would do everything she could. 77 years have passed by and the case of the missing Sodder children is still unsolved. Wow. Yeah. And so that is my case for today. It's a long one. I know y'all are probably like, what? Myra's like, Myra, I hope you enjoy it, girl, because you know I don't be doing the long cases like this. I do not. (laughs) And I know when Sammy hears this episode, it's all I'm going to hear about. That's crazy. Because it is. Me and Sammy's going to be talking about it. Yes. We all need to be talking about it. Okay? Because. That's crazy. Central City, Postmark, Lewis Sauter, some numbers on the back. We need to be finding out if these numbers mean anything to anybody. We need to be showing people the picture. Someone could be like, that's my grandpa. Oh my gosh. I mean, we, 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 we may end up solving this case, y'all. We could solve the case. Because he, okay, so Lewis, what year was he born? Do we know? 35. He was born in 35. Probably. Potentially. By Christmas of 45, he was 10. Okay. So, I can show Mamma and be like, Mamma. Yeah. He look familiar? Mm-hmm. I would die. She was like, yeah, that's da 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 I'd be like, dude. Yeah, that look like Billy Dean. What? Billy Dean? It's Billy Dean. Used to work at the, you know, at the IGA. Yeah, at the company store for the coal mining. I'm he, telling you, it's crazy. He helped you, Peppa, build this hat. Yeah. Uh, I'd fall shook, on the floor. Shook, 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 shook. Shook it to the core. That's crazy. Shook, 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 shook. But yeah, that was really good. Shook it to the core. I love this story. I mean, as much as you can love five missing children. Yeah. But this story really interests me, and I completely forgot about it until... Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. I forgot. I was like, oh, the Sodder Kids. I need to do the Sodder Kids. Like, that's still unsolved. Not that I would think maybe we could solve it, but then I mean, I was looking and it said Central City, and I was like, "Hold up, hold up, we need to do some investigating." Investigate. Yeah, I was investigating. I was watching that last week, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I love like I'll like say it with them in Harlem. Harlan was laying dead on my arm, my leg, and it was coming up, and I went, investigate. He jumped up like, <laughs> I was like, I'm He's like, investigate what? <laughs> Will we investigate? Oh, my gosh. Okay, y'all. So, that that is my case. The Sodder children. I mean, I need it to be, I need to be one that gets solved. We found the boy in the box. We found the lady of the dunes. We need to find the five children. Yeah, we need to find some sort of. And figure out if Lewis really was in Central City, Kentucky. 
Yeah. Or somebody, if it was just somebody playing a game, because you know how people be doing that. Yeah. You know. But that's, cr- that's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just a whole thing. So, I don't know. We got to figure this out. We got to figure it out. And um, if y'all have any questions, comments, if y'all know, because, okay, I'm going to post this picture of Lewis whenever this airs. You look, if that looks like your granddaddy or something. Or an uncle, Uncle Billy Dean, anything. Our <laughs> yep. number is 555. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can email us at a million murders at gmail.com. And you can check out, go to the Instagram, look at the picture. That's where it'll be. Yes. Um, of the people, places, things. And we have a Facebook group and page. We try to post when we can. If we remember. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're only human and life gets busy. But, so yeah, you and you can start conversations on those platforms as well. Yes. What have you. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I think that that's everything that I've got for today. And um, mm-hmm. y'all just keep an eye out for that picture because I really want to help solve this case. Mm-hmm. It would be phenomenal. But, um... But anyway, um, thank you all for tuning in. And we hope you come back for a a million million more. more. Bye. Bye.